Thank you, Barb, for those songs. Uh, some of those just really stirring, and there's a, what half of us here that's normally here, two thirds of what we normally are, and uh, sounded like there was just going off over there. Anyway, maybe because I was so close to the piano or something, maybe that's what it is. But yes, yes, it was Hannah. Good work, Hannah. So. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, I think we've probably pretty much all been here, we're all regulars. Um, we've sat under some of Adrian's sermons about the, uh, the kingdom of God. Um, the kingdom, what were his sermons? Seek the king and his kingdom, seek the king and his kingdom values. Uh, today I'm going to stay on the kingdom track and we're going to look at, um, we're going to hopefully understand how the king presides over the growth of his kingdom and then and how he sets it up for growth. And then we'll look into um, some of the hurdles that inhibit people from being part of God's kingdom. Now, this subject of the kingdom is a big one. Um, the subject of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, most scholars agree they're the same thing. Kingdom of heaven was used by Matthew, just not really offend his mainly Jewish audience. Um, this kingdom of God is... It's, it's a big subject. It's um, something that I, I thought I knew a lot of. I thought I knew almost 100% of this going into it. I was very proud. And then I read some more and then I realised I probably only knew about 90% of this whole kingdom picture. And then I read some more and I probably only knew about 80%. And then I had a bit more of a study and 70%. Until now I'm, I, knew, I know more than I knew at the start and I think I'm down to about a solid 3%. So it's... You don't know what you don't know, I suppose. So that's where I'm going. So I'm learning this as well. Um, so I don't want to um, I don't want to put myself up there as being this big scholar and everything. I'm learning it too. I'm more than happy to, for you to talk to me about it afterwards. Come to me with questions and problems and chapter verse and correct context, obviously, and we could have a discussion around it. So go ahead, grab your Bibles. And open them up to Matthew chapter 22. Um, today we're going to be watching a king fill up a wedding feast um, full of people he desires to bless through attending the wedding of his son. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Our Lord, we just come before you humbly today. Um, may you lay aside any preconceived ideas that we have that we hold harshly to in our hearts. Um, we just want to be subject to your truth and subject to the changing that your truth brings about and your word teaches us. So help us today, Lord, to be open to being taught by your word and your truth. I pray for soft hearts and minds. And I pray for myself, Lord, that you would use me, my voice box, my tongue, the air that I breathe to get your message out to your people today, Lord. Amen. So let's read Matthew chapter 22, and we'll start at verse 1. And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to all those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. 
The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So Jesus tells us at the outset of this parable, this is likened to the kingdom of heaven. And as we would expect from the infinitely complex God mind of Jesus, there's going to be a whole lot of stuff packed in here. There's an old Old Shawson quote actually that says, parables are like many-sided precious stones, cut so as to cast luster in more than one direction. And that is so true for this parable. So as, I, as I see it, there are two sort of information streams running through this parable. And sometimes they overlap and, then, and they hold meanings for both sides. Think of it as two train lines. They travel together and then to go through a tunnel, they come together and then they separate again and they might come together and go over a bridge. That's the sort of the two information lines that are working their way through this parable. I'm going to try and pull them apart. It might look a little bit like unravelling two bits of handwritten paper that have been scrunched together and soaked in a bucket of water. All right, We need to pry them apart so that we can read both but without ripping either of them. So, the first of these two lines is a historic, leading to prophetic narrative of Israel and the church, which are God's two elect groups of people that he's had as his chosen people through history. And then secondly, the second line, there's a parable and imagery or understanding of salvation and an individual's responsibility of what they then do with a royal invitation. Now, as... As Jesus tells the parable in this way, I'm more than happy to follow his lead and, and look at both aspects too. Um, firstly, we'll look at the king and the choices and actions that he has in setting up and preparing everything for his banquet or the kingdom. And then we'll look at the invited people's responsibilities and their choices and actions um, come from that. So before we jump in and study through we need to establish who the two people groups are. Firstly, there's the invited people who were the first choice of the king. They are the king's own people that he wanted in his banquet. They were his own people that he sent multiple invitations to, okay, through his servants. Now, when you hear servants, think of prophets and apostles. And, when, and these people often mistreated bashed up, sometimes even killed, these servants. So who might that people group be? Israel. That's right. I heard a whisper somewhere. Israel, of course. And then the second group of people, okay, the mob of ragtags, who were the seconds in the fruit market, 
who weren't the first to be picked, okay, who were brought in from all over the place. Who were they? Us, exactly, the church, including us as Gentiles, of course. So now that we understand who those two people groups are, um, mentioned in the historic leading to prophetic line that travels through this parable, let's move into it and pry it open and um, look at how our God and King sets his kingdom for growth through these two groups. Oh, also, sorry, at the start, it's also fairly obvious to establish that the king mentioned here is God the Father, king of the kingdom of heaven. Pretty easy to sort of work that out. We don't need a whole lot of study or in-depth analysis to work that one out. And note also that the king is throwing this banquet for his son's wedding, which is then an allusion to pointing towards, and we'll get there soon in our travels through Revelation, the, ch the marriage of Jesus Christ. Christ to his church later on. That we'll, as I said, we'll get to that in Revelation 19. So that's our setup. That's our background, okay? That's where all this is taking place of. It's a royal wedding. So let's start by examining the choices of the king in how he has set up, how he sets up his kingdom. First of the king's choices and actions is that he sends his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast. All right, now, before we go much further in this, we just hit pause for a sec, and we'll talk about some historic traditions. Okay, the Jewish tradition of banquets in Jesus' time were large affairs, okay, and without the benefits of modern travel and refrigeration and other sort of technologies, they had to arrange things a little bit different to them, what, different than what we're used to today. So if you're a, a royal or a high society type person, you want to throw a massive party for all your friends, you would first send an invitation telling them that they're invited. Okay, it would say something like, dear much loved, important friend, you're I'm throwing a massive shindig and you're invited. He, or he might say party or, or hoedown or something. So that's it. Has anyone ever received like a save the date before they've got a wedding invitation? Similar sort of thing, except without the date bit. It'd just be a save the to be yeah, save the week, save save the to be continued, okay? Now this first invite was just so that the people knew that they were important and they were invited. They would be called upon with a second invitation at some time soon. Now, this second invitation was sent by the host when everything was ready. Okay? The animals had been killed, prepared and cooked. All the other food was, um, was arranged, cooked as well. The tables had been set. The wine had arrived. All right? The entertainment, the singers, musicians, dancers, whatever, they were all there ready to go. And then the king would come out and he would see, okay, or the host, he'd see everything's ready. Okay, send my messengers. And they would go out to everyone that received that first invitation. The feast is now ready. Come. It's ready. Come to the wedding feast. Everyone, you, important people that, had, that knew this was coming, come. And everyone would then immediately make their way to the wedding venue for a great time of feasting for a week or two. Banqueting. Big hoedown. So the king in his parable he has made the choice that his kingdom is ready. 
that this banquet is ready. It's his timing. He now gives the signal to his messengers, go. You, my servant Elijah, go. You, my servant Isaiah, go. Okay? And then when the people ignore and they don't come, you, my servant John, go. You, my servants, the disciples, go. Tell them everything is ready. Tell them the feast is ready. The banquet's ready. The kingdom's ready. So that's the first of the kingly choices. Which of the servants were elected into service as messengers and when to take his message out. And then also we notice there is that second, second invitation. So in God's graciousness, he's given a third invitation to tell them that everything is ready. Come. Now the second of the king's choices that we see is that the king decides in what order the people are invited. Well, this is where we can pull in that, um, that historic, prophetic narrative we talked about in the, in the intro. Um, God as king chose to invite his people Israel first. It was his choice. Us as Gentiles from all other nationalities that make up the church at large today, we were not the first choice for the message to go out to. That's the truth of it, and that was God's choice in having that order. Okay? The second group of people, the church, is invited after Israel royally muffed it up okay? by ignoring the message, by beating up the servants. And then ultimate, their ultimate rejection was rejecting their Messiah by putting Jesus to death. And then this, of course, opens up the, the passage into the church age. Okay, where after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Israel's put aside for a little while and the spotlight and the focus comes over on the church. And so the, the message, the servants are going out to anyone and everyone in this world, the bad, the good, anyone who hears his message through his servants is invited into the banquet, into God's kingdom. Anyone. So to sum up that second point, it was the king's choice to send the invitation to his special people, Israel, the Jews first, and then second to the misfits along the road. You, me, Cole, everyone else here, the Gentiles. And Peter makes this point in his sermon on Solomon's porch in Acts 3. Okay, Speaking to Jews, he says, You are the sons of the prophets, and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. And then in Romans 1, um, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power unto salvation to those who believe, first to the Jew, and then to the Greek, or Gentiles. That's right. So that's the second of his choices. And then the third choice of the king pointed out in this parable is to only allow those people dressed correctly to remain in the banquet. After the guests are gathered in from everywhere by the servants, the king comes for a walk through to inspect his guests, potential guests. And then noticing one guy not dressed correctly, 
not in wedding clothes, in the wedding garment. He has him thrown out, and the wording used there is in reference to being thrown out into hell forever. And then and that flows into the final verse of the chapter, or our passage, sorry. It says, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, yes, and invited, yes. But by the time we exclude those who ignore the call, okay, had higher priorities, rebelled against his servants, uh, and didn't dress correctly, there are only a few chosen by the king to remain in the banquet. And then finally, the fourth choice that we see that the king makes in this parable is he chooses the punishment for those who ultimately um, reject his invitation to the banquet. Now, this punishment isn't just a stern talking to or a slap on the wrist either. Okay? This king has gone to great lengths to prepare this banquet and honour his son, and he will not let himself or his son be dishonoured. Now, the punishment for the first group, Israel, was for their city to be laid siege to and sacked and the temple destroyed and many thousands of people killed in 70 AD. And God used the Roman army under the command of Emperor Titus to bring that about. Now, what I want to read you some excerpts of now is from one of the most famous historians of the time, Josephus Flavius. He's got a very cool last name, doesn't he? Full of flavour, this guy, in talking with a banquet. Anyway, we'll let that joke slide. Now, Josephus' work isn't Holy Spirit-inspired, okay? But from a purely historical journaling perspective, it's, it's very handy to throw a lot of cultural background onto what was happening in the first century in the biblical world. Okay? So here are some excerpts of what he says about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, just to get a feel for the horror of the punishment okay, that came upon these per this first group. And these are his words, obviously translated. While the holy house was on fire, everything was plundered that came to hand, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain. Nor is there a commiseration of any age or any reverence of gravity, but children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner. It goes on, down further. For one would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it. But the blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and those that were slain more in number than those that slew them. For the ground did nowhere appear visible for the dead bodies that lay on it. But the soldiers went over heaps of those bodies as they ran upon such as fled from them. He goes on. And now the Romans, judging that it was in vain to spare what was round the holy house, burned all those places, as also the remains of the cloisters and the gates, two accepted, one on the east side and the other on the south, both of which, however, they burned afterwards. They also burnt down the treasury chambers, in which was an immense quantity of money and an immense number of garments and other precious goods there reposited down a little bit further and he says the soldiers also came to the rest of the cloisters that were the inner court of the temple whither the women and children and a great mixed multitude of people fled 
in about 6,000. But before Caesar had determined anything about these people or given the commanders any orders relating to them, the soldiers were in such a rage that they set that cloister on fire. Now, I mentioned those historical snippets only in showing the utter seriousness of God's judgment in dealing with rebellion. And remember, this was the second time the temple was destroyed. The first time it had been destroyed was by the Babylonians about 600 years prior. Okay? The king of the parable has gone to great lengths to prepare this banquet and rejection of him and his son brings about fearful punishment. Now this sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple by fire foreshadows in some small way the the devastating and final destruction and punishment, sorry, described, described for those who, who ultimately reject the invitation of the king to come to his parable wearing the correct garment. The man discovered to be not wearing a wedding garment is thrown out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing or that's grinding of teeth. Pain and agony, a terrible place. The final destination for those who reject the invitation and don't respond appropriately to it, that final destination being the lake of fire. So, to wrap up our first section, God's choices around how he runs and has set up his kingdom. He chose which of the servants to send and when to send them with his message to come into the kingdom. He chose to have two People groups invite his own people first and then the others second into his kingdom. He chose to only allow those dressed correctly to remain in his kingdom. And he has chosen the punishment for those who reject his generous and kind invitation. Now, as these choices are pertaining only to the almighty God, there's nothing we can do about them. Okay, he sets the stage he makes the rules, he's all-powerful, we're just his creation that is broken and twisted and busted up by sin. We can, we can rant and we can rave and we can whinge and complain about this not being fair and that not being fair and that not being moral, all the while pretending that we even have some sort of moral grounding from which to stand on to make those claims of morality. Like, when it all comes down to it, he is God. He is God. Who, who are we? Who are you to question his ways? You're like a dainty little snowflake with its chest all puffed out, if, if snowflakes have chests, strolling up to a big supernova and whinging that it's too hot. Moron snowflake. You know, don't be the snowflake. That confrontation's not going to go well for you. Man has to play by God's rules. Okay? Now, to look into this, we'll hop over onto that second train line that we had running through the parable. Okay? It weaves through and it deals with man's responsibility. Now, the, this line, clickety-clack, 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 through both groups of people, okay? We can learn from man's heart attitudes from the Israelites and from people in the church. So how does the kingdom grow, okay? We see these invitations going out to one and all, 
anyone and everybody from all over the place, verse 9 and verse 10, I think, say, where the servants were sent out to invite anyone in the main roads, one and all, bad and good. And who were the types of people using the main roads? Exactly, merchants. That was my first one off the mark, Andrew. Good. Foreigners and refugees and beggars and transients and bandits and tradesmen and vagabonds and soldiers and rich and poor. Everyone, no matter who they were, were found on the roads and could be presented with an invitation to the banquet. Okay? Now, the vital point to note in this study of man is that all invitees, regardless of if they're part of the first group or part of the second group, are only referred to as invitees. They're not guests yet. Their destiny is not assured as guests when they are invited. There is no banqueting assured for them when the invitation first reaches their ears. And herein lies the one and only responsibility for the invitee to enter the kingdom of God. But there are many hindrances, multiple hindrances. So we're going to look at three of them that are explained in the parable. First of these hindrances is the deadly indifference, I'll call it. Notice verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. Now I try, I try to do a lot of wide and, and varied reading from all over the place. A lot of the time I find myself in my favourite niches, but I try to push myself out there. And recently I came across a word called apatheism, which means, as you, as you probably worked out, it's a very clever combination of terms, apathy towards the existence of God. And, and Google Ngram didn't even have a record of this existing much in the last few years. So I guess that means for an apatheist, they must be the next level sort of hipsters in the, in the atheist crowd. So they've gone past arguing with people about whether there's a God or not, and they're the next step over in that they just don't care. So what if there's a God? Who cares? I'm not going to argue with you. Whatever, man. Just, I don't care. God or not, whatever. So, it got me thinking, is being an apatheist um, even a more dangerous place to be in than being an atheist? See, an atheist um, has, has a, is, is fighting against the idea of God, whereas an apatheist is completely sold over to being completely okay and not caring at all. See, the atheist has got uh, like inner passion left in him which drives him to fight against the evidence of God all around him in creation that he sees and feels, but he can't escape it, so he fights. But someone who is completely passionless, who seems completely and wholly turned over to their own ways that they don't even see or feel that witness of God, in creation, that witness to God of creation. So according to our parable, what brings about this apatheism, this indifference, and its distraction with 
and wrongly aligned priorities of earthly things. See, Australia is a big country with a good mix of um, different types of people, from cities people and country people, and we often divide along city and country lines. Um, we have stereotypes for both, even down to which sort of political party you're likely to vote for if you live here or you live there. Now, and there are big differences among those people with country or farm priorities, as in the parable, and priorities with those in the city or business priorities. But notice that the danger of apathism or deadly indifference affects both of them, regardless of whether they're throwing themselves into their farm or their business. Where your treasure is, hey, there your heart will be also. So hear me now. If you have a disinterested or apath apathetic sort of view toward the things of God, you must cry out to the Lord Jesus and ask him to into your life and to save you and accept his invitation into the kingdom. He loves you and he wants you in the kingdom. And if you belong to the Lord, but you still feel this dullness of apathy uh, creeping into your relationship with him, then you also need to cry out to him and ask him to renew a right spirit within you and reorient your view away from earthly things and back to things of him and his kingdom goals. Take Hebrews 6, verse 4 to 6, as your warning. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. So do not, do not flirt around the edges of the kingdom thinking you can keep doing what you're doing and there will always be a way back for you. Make sure you're all in, wholly committed and sold out and following Jesus and not just sitting on the, the edges of the kingdom, just getting those good vibes, those good feels, or whatever the cool kids say these days. Don't just sit at the edges and just listen to the music or whatever. Don't be there before falling away and then being eventually cast out. The second of the hindrances that I can see in this parable is the deadly rebellion. You look at verse 6. These people who the invites have gone out to, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. So how much do you have to hate somebody to turn down a wedding invite? Not only that, but then to bash up and kill the dude that brought the invitation to you? How much do you have to hate someone? for that to be the case. So what, what's going on here is so much contempt for the king and his servants that people will do anything to stop even hearing about him. Now these men and women are directly opposed to the king. In other words, they're men and women in rebellion to God. Now, the Bible only has really dire warnings for those individuals and groups who are in rebellion to God. Psalm 68 says, The rebellious dwell in a parched land. 
uh, parched land, it's, it's dry, it's dead, there's no life there, there's no streams of living waters, it's miserable, it's oppressed, it's completely cut off from life. And rebellion then also causes a self-perpetuating motion that drives into more rebellion through blind eyes and deaf ears. In Ezekiel 12, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel and he says, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but see not, and ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. See, we touched on our friend, the atheist earlier, that is fighting out of a rebellious passion, desperately wanting to disprove God so that any laws that God has made that he disagrees with will also be negated and thus leaving him free to sin without his inner God-built conscience pricking him all the time. But the more he fights, the more entrenched he becomes in his hatred toward the God that his inner conscience continually keeps bearing witness about. It's just a cruel loop. Paul writes about the conscience pricking him in bearing witness to God in Romans 2. So, If you are in this place of hating God deep in your heart and rebelling against him, then you are in this cruel, self-perpetuating spiral into eventual and complete, utter, permanent removal and separation from God. You want to be rid of God, and you will be one day then, if you want it so bad. But it won't be the amazing sinful place of pleasure and freedom that you think it is. It will be a terrible and a frightful place. However, Jesus can stop this rebellion and its toxic momentum inside of you. Okay? The antidote for rebellion is just to, for a moment, lay down your arms in hostility. Cry out to Jesus and repent of your hatred towards him and honestly ask him for forgiveness and he will give it to you. Seek him and you'll find him. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. Seek Jesus and he will come to you and reverse the rebellion in your heart claiming your heart and soul as another victory and another frontier into his good kingdom. And third and then finally of the final of these hindrances is the deadly self-righteousness. Let's come back to Matthew 22 and look at verse 12. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Oh. Potentially one of the most dangerous inhibitors to the kingdom, and it's the one that people sitting in church pews are most likely to fall victim to. See, you may not be an apotheist who doesn't care, or you may not be in outright rebellion to God cutting down his people, but you could well be sitting here in church with a good disguise on. See, life is really interesting in that the older you get, the more you can look back on points of life with more clarity and understanding than you actually had when you were living that point in life. 
Have you ever had that moment where it dawned on you why someone did something, why someone did what they did, that at the time really baffled you or was a bit confusing as to why they did it? It's just like, oh yeah, that's why my dad used to do that all the time. Or, yeah, no wonder she didn't like me, I was an idiot. You know, those, those types of things. So it was for me that when I look back in my life, I can see that I was completely and utterly uh, sold out to this deception, this self-righteous attitude as a late teenager in, in my early 20s or something. Now, the only person who ultimately knows how deep my heart was ensnared to it is Jesus because he pulled me out of it. And one day I'm going to ask him and he'll tell me how far I was in and it will cause me to hug him tighter because of his patience and graciousness in leading me out of it. So this is my personal experience. So we have a scenario here in the parable where the people are invited by the king into the wedding hall ready for the banquet. Okay, and the king comes in to inspect the people that are here and who have heard the invitation and responded in a favourable way to it. But he spots a guy not dressed as he should be. Now, maybe I'm thinking too much of this, um, too much into it, but it seems surprising to me that the other invitees that were there hadn't noticed this guy not dressed correctly. Now, I love weddings, and who doesn't? And there's probably, there was a point in, in Camille and, and my life where we were going to weddings, or all our friends were getting married thick and fast in amongst, like we were in the middle of it at all, and there seemed to be a, a different wedding we were going to every one or two months. And weddings are a great time of happiness and love and family and friends of the bride and groom coming together and getting to know each other. There's good food and good wine and dancing and just general hoorah. And because they're such a fantastic occasion, tradition all down through the ages has been that we wear our very best clothes to them. And some people even go out and buy new outfits especially for them. <coughs> My wife. So, if you're at a wedding surrounded by well-dressed people, some could have on some brand new outfits, some could even have an op shop suit on. But there is still that formal um, standard there. A guy wearing thongs and bordies and a faded gunner's shirt from the 80s, he's going to stick out like a sore thumb, isn't he? There's going to be shifty glances and murmurings from the other invited guests. So, I understand that this guy that was spotted by the king was unnoticed by those about. Maybe he was wearing camouflage though, who knows, but he was spotted by the king. He was only noticed by the king. As the Lord told Samuel in his search for King David when he was just a little boy, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Who would think that just this nine-year-old kid is going to grow up into be one of the best king, aside from King Jesus himself, that the people would know. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So it was, and so it is, that 
People will sit in church pews Sunday after Sunday, year after year, thinking that they're dressed well enough to deserve a place in the kingdom. We are warned by Jesus himself that one day many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, get out. To that place where old matey that was not dressed correctly was thrown to. And this, I feel, is a, is a great danger for those of us who have grown up in the church. Okay, sure, we're not injecting heroin into our eyeballs when we're 13, or we're not running like a child pornography ring out of our garage, okay? But the blunt, brutal truth is that our own self-righteous behaviour, and mine too, is just as disgusting as those other two in God's eyes. This is why these parables were addressed to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Man, those dudes oozed self-righteousness. And this is why it's so destructive, because we feel we're doing good, but in reality we can't do good of ourselves. So all the things we think that are beautiful and amazing and God should accept me, in God's sight, he just looks at them. It's a pile of putrid, stinking, rancid, diseased rags. Now, if you've got those hot guilt flushes, ask the Lord to search your heart on this and examine really carefully yourself that you really are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Okay? He died to cover you. All you need to do is accept what is offered you and let him put his righteousness over your shoulders. Right, you don't need to do anything only let him do it for you. He's not going to push himself on you and do it for you. You need to let him. Now, I want all of you present here today and those listening probably sometime in the future on YouTube, podcasts or whatever, to be there in that banqueting hall in the kingdom of God, listening to me now and understanding what I'm saying is your invitation to come to Jesus. Let him put that robe of righteousness on you that he secured for you by dying for you. Let him put it over your shoulders. Now, um, to pull all this together and to put us on a trajectory for, to explore more of the kingdom of God ambitions in the new year, remember that God is building his kingdom in this world on many different levels. Let's read Isaiah 61. And we'll start in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as the bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So for the Lord's kingdom to grow up and claim more and more of the world, of this world, and cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations, he has accomplished everything needed to bring in his kingdom by preparing the banquet, sending his servants with the invitations, preparing a chosen people for you to join, setting entry conditions, 
and a fitting punishment to those who ignore and rebel or try to make it on their own. All you need do, prayerfully, is humbly come to the Lord with your head bowed low, admitting you have no merit of yourself. And with great thanks, accept the rich offer of his robe of righteousness around your shoulders and let him welcome you in as now our guest to the wedding of his son.